As we try and get used to our new lives in lockdown, there's just one question anyone's asking. How long will this last? Ideally, we'd have it that we go back to quarantining individual cases and everyone else just walking around a lot less. Of course, how long is really a question of what works, of what needs to happen for life to return to normal, or at least something very like normal. I think there's no normal to the vaccine. We will be in a holding pattern. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, how do we get out of the lockdown? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves... Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I am at the moment uh, talking to you from underneath my eldest son's duvet at the far end of the house to try to get the right sound quality. Tom Whipple is science editor at The Times. I've been in the downstairs loo, but that was too close in proximity to my baby son, who was screaming. He's at home and he's been getting used to working in weird ways. I'm now at the other end of the house and the only peril here is that we live next door to mandolin players and I can slightly hear them coming through. So if there's some nice jaunty music, that's why. We've had to take the dog out for her approved half-hour walk and I have a horrible suspicion that our neighbours are taking up the bassoon. So let's see. Let's talk about the first place which this started in because you see looking at Wuhan as being an important thing for us if we're going to understand where we're going. Three months ago Wuhan was the petri dish of the world. It was this experiment to see if we could keep coronavirus locked down of this new virus that slowly seeped into our consciousness in the west was something that would stay around the animal markets of Wuhan. First it travelled from animals into humans and then we realised it was travelling from humans into humans and then it got serious and then it didn't stay in Wuhan. So that was the first time it's been the experiment of the world. Now is the second time because having been the place where this all started, it's been the first place where it has apparently all finished. There's been, I think, one new case in Wuhan in the past five days. In the whole of China, there's been fewer than 100 probably imported. And so they are looking at lifting the restrictions in Wuhan. 
And this suddenly matters a lot for the world, because if Wuhan can find a way to come out of lockdown and function and not get a big second wave, then that points a way for us to do the same. They're not going to suddenly be holding massed house parties in Wuhan and going on parades through the street to celebrate the end of coronavirus. They're going to be being careful. They're going to be using some of the things we've learnt. They're going to be doing some things which we're going to talk about, like contact tracing. And the real hope is that they can keep the thing tamped down. Because the whole world has only one exit strategy from this in the long term, and that's a vaccine. The problem with a vaccine is it's probably going to be at least a year before we have one. So the question is, can we find a way to bridge that year? It might not be comfortable, it won't be ideal, but can we find a way to get some sort of normality so that maybe the next time we talk, or maybe when we talk in the summer, I won't be hiding under a duvet in my son's bedroom? Is there a way for the world to start working again? Let's look at exactly the way you put it. Let's look at that year. And I suppose we should start with a kind of definitional question. We all talk about lockdown and so on. What do we actually mean by lockdowns? Are there different forms of lockdown? So, yes, there are some measures that are completely comparable across the world. Banning of mass gatherings, closing of schools and the introductions of some forms of isolation for people who get sick. Lockdown itself is a slightly loose term. You know, the extent to which police powers are involved, the extent to which you can go for your one exercise a day, who can go shopping. But broadly speaking, it's what we're seeing here. It's what we're seeing in Italy. It's these bustling towns where you go on the streets and they're empty and it's like you're running through the apocalypse. And so, yes, there are lots of legalistic differences between them, but the end result actually isn't that dissimilar from country to country. Because the whole point is to stop people contacting each other. Exactly, yeah. Let's peer forwards. Three months from now, June 2020, what kind of restrictions, as things are going, do you think we will be under? Will they be the current ones? I think, depressingly, we will almost certainly be under the current ones or something very, very close to them in three months' time. I think it's highly unlikely that we're going to be open in any meaningful sense in three months. Is there a possibility that they can relax things like contact with family members? I'll tell you why. I mean, everybody's got their own story about what bothers them most about this. But I have uh, a younger daughter up in Edinburgh. We think she's had the virus. She's 22. We haven't seen her for a month. I have an older daughter who was due to get married this year. She's in South London. Haven't seen her for several weeks now. That's what's bothering me most. There are other things that will bother other people more. When might that aspect of things uh, ease? Is that something that you could see being done away with at the end of the three months? If we could return to a state where you're able to visit your elderly granny, you're able to have the occasional Sunday lunch with your children, that's not too bad. But of course, the problem we're doing away with it one weekend is that's the weekend when everybody in Britain gets in their car and goes to Edinburgh when everybody in Britain does these things. This is one of the things that we need to consider is how do you very, very slowly reintroduce these things?
some of the advice was that we could slowly lift it in different places and then reimpose it, watch what the disease does. There's a paper out from Harvard which has said the same thing, that we could have a kind of pump priming where you, you lift these things and you say, yes, maybe in the Midlands you are able to go and see your family, but then uh, we'll see how it goes there and we might reimpose it. Uh, but it's not the last thing that they want is a sudden flood of people doing the one thing that they're then allowed to do. So that's the problem, essentially, which is that we might all want to do the same thing that I want to do at exactly the same time. Is it the case that, because there's been a lot of talk about this, that we are going to see a peaking of the number of cases and the number of deaths, not exactly the same thing, inside the next two to three weeks in somewhere like London? Uh, And people will think, well, that's the peak. This has worked. We can let up a bit now. Yeah, that's exactly what we'd expect the trajectory London's on. We are entering the worst period now. This is the period where we'll see whether, as I think Patrick Valance put it, it's a close-run thing for the NHS. But once we're through that, the whole point of this is we are suppressing the peak. We will have the peak. A lot of that will be people who've caught it before the current restrictions. And then we're going to see it, like Wuhan, hopefully, drop to nothing. And then, yes, there will be a clamour, as we see this happened, for us to open up. Who doesn't want to look forward to a summer in beer gardens and maybe even, although this really is a forlorn hope, maybe even a summer of going away on holiday? But that's precisely when we have to be careful because for exactly the same reasons in Wuhan, this will return. And so that's why I think most people think that three months for any return to normality is unlikely. But there are ways that we can imagine getting out of this before that magical vaccine finally arrives. Tom, at the weekend, the Deputy Chief Medical Officer Jenny Harries warned life couldn't return to normal for six months. I think three weeks for review, uh, two or three months to see whether we've really squashed it, um, but about three to six months, uh, ideally, and lots of uncertainty in that but then to see uh, at which point we can actually get back to normal. And it is plausible that it could go further than that. Why would she say that? I think when she stood up and said that, it began to sink in for a lot of people in the way that it hasn't so far. I think we all noticed the lockdown And what was less obvious to us, and fewer people noticed, was the length of the lockdown. There was this awareness that we were living through history and that this is an exciting thing to live in such strange times. And after a week of that, two weeks of that, we're realising that this is actually also quite a boring thing, unless you're affected. And then we hear her say this very boring thing is going to continue for six months. She was saying we would review this every three weeks for six months and then we might have to keep going longer. Well, when these restrictions were put in on the basis of that paper from Imperial, the paper itself said that we would be keeping going until there's a vaccine. The author of it, Neil Ferguson, was completely clear a vaccine is our exit strategy and was completely clear that would be 12 to 18 months. I would love it if that quite scary prediction of the deputy chief medical officer was correct and it became merely a uh, six-month lockdown. After the three months we'll start to look at strategies. A lot of this will be informed by what's going on in China. 
One of the things, and this sounds nebulous, but it's really important, is that just people's behaviour has changed. They're starting to see in parts of China that go back to some sort of normality that, yes, people are going to work, but do you know what? They're not going for drinks after work. They're not socialising in the same way. People are washing their hands more. People are wearing face masks that remains controversial in Britain. The other thing, and this is crucial, and this is why everyone's talking so much about testing, is that a way out of this, a way out of this earlier is to spot clusters as soon as they arrive and then deal with them. So you could imagine Britain slowly coming out of things. Maybe a quarter of the workforce goes back one week, half the next week, and maybe they're all told to work from home if they possibly can. And if we've got continual surveillance in the population, these tests continually looking to see what's happening, where it is, then when we find a cluster, we go to the cluster, we trace the people who've met the people there, and we then try to deal with just them and have these, I guess, roving cordons rather than a whole country cordoned. How well structured are we in Britain to do those things? Are we well along the path of doing any of them? Well, if you believe the government, then testing is coming. It's so clear that testing is what we need to do. I've been hearing in off-the-record briefings that there's real plans in place to get this to an industrial level, that there's there's one scheme that's going to get us up to these 25,000 tests a day, but in parallel, they're getting to sort of mass, mass testing, because they know this is the only way that we're going to really do it. Six months from now, let's cast forward, September 2020, what kind of restrictions do you think will be under then? And I guess what you're going to say is it depends whether we're successful in doing the things that we've just talked about. It does. I mean, I think a lot of these restrictions, a lot of the things we've just talked about are probably things that we might start thinking will really help us come about September. I, I think three months is optimistic. It's possible that if you look at the severity of the uh, impositions on social distancing, ideally we'd have it that we go back to quarantining individual cases and everyone else just walking around a lot less. Ideally, this wouldn't be quite so draconian, quite so state-imposed. I doubt we're going to get back to the stage where we have mass gatherings. If you remember, the last thing they did almost was close schools. A lot of parents would love it if we could see a way to open up schools for the new term in September, and I get there will be a lot of pressure to do that, particularly as the early modelling suggested that schools weren't actually the epicentres of spread that you thought they were. September 2020, what you're you're saying is no football matches, no theatre, maybe no pubs, etc. But maybe I can have my daughters over. Yeah, I think so. I think there'll be such a clamour for that. I think almost certainly no pubs or restaurants. They didn't get this message across terribly well, although they tried. Their reticence about closing down football matches and concerts and things like that is we think about them as places where lots of people gather and if lots of people gather then you're more likely to catch it. But actually, it's always the people immediately around you. And so pubs and restaurants were always considered to be as dangerous as major pop concerts and things like that. And we spend a lot more time in pubs and restaurants. So that was the concern about those. But And, you know, family meals are just as dangerous as well. But if you've got rid of the pubs and restaurants, then maybe, yeah, we can start saying let's have those family meals. In six months' time, 
would we be at the situation whereby we would have sufficient testing regime to be able to say some areas can now actually be more or less lifted out of this kind of lockdown? We might well find that there are some areas who are far less affected, but what you don't want is people in those areas travelling to London or other places and bring it back with you. The last thing you want is unaffected areas to then be reopened to infection from the rest of the country. So we'll have to be careful about travel restrictions as well. There's one other thing that we should weave in on this. If you cast your mind back to when when I think this all really began and became real for people, it was that announcement from Downing Street that was immediately followed by the release of a paper from Imperial College that was estimating our previous laxer policy would result in 260,000 deaths. And we all concentrated on the 260,000 deaths. Now, chatting to people behind it, yes, that was a worry for the government. But the thing that really scared them, the thing that really pushed everything forward, wasn't the death toll. It was the projection that the NHS would simply stop coping. Their estimates of the number of people in ICU exceeded the numbers of beds we had eight times over. And this petrified people in Whitehall. There's two ways for us to not overload the NHS. The first is to increase the beds which we're doing. And the second is, I think, probably more palatable to most people. And that's to find ways so that if you catch this disease, you don't end up in ICU. So that it's not as severe. By September, I fully expect that we will have several different treatments quite well advanced to stop people getting to that stage. The balance is slightly shifted. In other words, we can partially lift some restrictions because we're actually able to deal with the consequences of people getting the disease much better. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. Do you remember what it's like being in your 20s? I sometimes look back at that period of my life and laugh just as much as I cringe. If you do the same, then you've got to watch Queenie, the new original series on Hulu. Who is Queenie? Queenie is a 20-something year old living in London. She's facing all the firsts. First major heartbreak, first shitty apartment and soul-sucking job, first therapy session to work through those mommy issues. Can she turn her quarter-life crisis into a revolution? Maybe. Will she make some questionable decisions along the way? Definitely. The new series Queenie is now streaming on Hulu. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. So, by September 2020, we could be looking at a situation whereby we can have schools again, we can see our relatives again, we can, a lot of us, go to work in much more controlled circumstances again, providing we can control them, but we won't be back to normal. Let's go another six months down from there, 12, 18 months from now. How do you think we'll be living then? I think 12 months, 18 months from now, we will have a vaccine. And this is an astonishing statement to make with that level of confidence. Vaccines typically take a decade or more to develop. We know that most vaccines fail. 
we know that if you develop a candidate drug at this stage, the chances are pretty low that it's going to be successful. But there are dozens upon dozens now of candidate vaccines. And they're all entering human trials. And just to explain how astonishing that in itself is, the scientific work is normally the thing that takes a long time. Developing this candidate drug, normally you're talking years and years. And we've got to the stage where in three months, loads are going into human trials. I mean, I've just volunteered for the Oxford trial. There's a trial already up and running in in the States. So what do you mean you've just volunteered for the Oxford trial? I think they've had a lot of volunteers. I'm hoping that I'll be accepted and that I can go and be one of the first to be vaccinated and do the safety trials for their vaccine. I think the news desk will be pleased to get a couple of pieces out of it as well. But we'll see what happens. What, what did your family say about that? My wife wasn't ecstatic, but you know, vaccines are pretty safe. This might be the recording that you play after my death, but uh, you're putting a little protein, a bit of benign protein into you, so I'm quite happy about it. Tom Whipple um, was a good man, and we just want to play you this <laughs> of how blithely he went to his death. He just didn't understand vaccine science. <laughs> yeah, but that's this is amazing. And now we need to think, how do we get through human trials fast? So... There are three phases of human trials. Phase one is safety. You put it in a few guinea pigs and you see if they don't keel over. And you also actually see if they've made an antibody response. You test if there's been any immune... Sorry, Tom, do you mean real guinea pigs or do you mean people? I mean me, yeah, people. Phase two is a larger efficacy trial. So typically you put it in, let's say, a thousand people and a thousand people are a control group who receive probably another vaccine because you can sort of tell when you've had a vaccine because your arm throbs. Then we wait and see. And when, let's say, a hundred of the people who've had the placebo have gone on to develop the disease, then you assume that a hundred of those who had the real vaccine have hopefully not gone on to develop the disease but have been exposed and you declare the vaccine a success then you go into far larger trials looking at safety and efficacy in thousands and thousands of people now these are of indeterminate length because the problem is you've got to wait for those hundred people to be infected in your control group before you can declare that this has been successful the irony is now that we're under lockdown They'll have to wait even longer for the 100 people to be infected. Probably you'd, you'd do it in frontline medical workers because they're more exposed. But still, our efforts to slow the virus are slowing our efforts to develop a vaccine. This is why some scientists have suggested that for phase two, maybe what we could do is what's called a challenge trial, where instead of waiting for people to be infected, we deliberately infect them. So you take 100 people, you give them the vaccine, 100 people, you give them a placebo, and then you infect them. And suddenly you've cut all of that, which could be six months plus, down to a month because you know that they've been given it and you can see if they respond. You normally only do these trials in diseases for which you have a cure. We don't have a cure for this. Yeah, it's like asking people to have a snake bite, but you don't have the antidote. It's exactly like that. And these are the times we're in. The scientists who proposed are quite clear about what they're asking and the ethical implications. Their argument was, well, look, we ask firefighters every day to go into danger. We ask police officers to go into danger. This is not unprecedented to do something dangerous for the common good. And what's more, if you conducted the trial in 20 to 45-year-olds, we know their chances of reactions 
that are serious are unlikely. And if you then follow them with medical staff, you know, this is almost the best way for them to get the disease. It's not without risk. And that's why ethics boards normally would say no to that. But equally, if we could just by months get the world a vaccine, then that saved lives and it saved the economy. It's, it would be a major, major victory. Then we've got phase three. Now, there's another way that you can slightly cheat on phase three. You think, well, we're going to give this to thousands and thousands of people and test how it works. Maybe, why don't we give it to tens or hundreds of thousands of people and check how it works? And why don't we make those tens or hundreds of thousands of people our frontline doctors who we know haven't yet got it? Why don't we put it around the biggest clusters that we know we have? And why don't we effectively make phase three an early emergency release of the vaccine itself? This has been done before. This was done with the Ebola vaccine. And there are good reasons to do it. And then suddenly you're looking at a vaccine that we might just be able to get out before winter. And then whilst it wouldn't have passed phase three trials, whilst technically we wouldn't have a medically approved vaccine, we would be beginning to get a population that's being treated with the vaccine and that is able to return to work a little bit earlier. So that would, I think, be the the great hope and possibly a way that by a year from now we might have even had the beginnings of a vaccination programme. Now, in the period as we begin to develop the vaccine, but we've actually successfully contained or for the moment contained the virus, how is life going to be? Is it going to be exactly like it used to be? I think there's no normal to the vaccine. We will be in a holding pattern. I would sincerely hope there's no normal after we have a vaccine either. I think we've learnt things. This has been frankly a warning shot to the world about the power of pandemics and many people would say it's been horrible for those who've got it obviously it's been horrible for those who've died but we've been lucky that it hasn't been worse sorry tom what do you mean this is a warning shot of what could happen in a pandemic isn't this the thing that they warned about are you saying that there's a a worse thing well we know that pandemics could be worse we've been through worse The pandemic it's most often compared to, and justifiably, is Spanish flu. Uh, The really awful thing was that it was parents burying their children. It was soldiers coming back from the First World War, finding they were dying from this virus. You, You don't have to be one of these sort of rigorous utilitarians who counts years of life expectancy as a way of assessing the worth of a life to say that a virus would be worse if it attacked the young. This doesn't attack the extreme young which we're extremely lucky about because normally you'd expect the U-shaped curve where infants were as susceptible as the old and as likely to get severe illness as the old. We haven't got that. And its fatality rate is low. The thing that really scares 
a lot of the people looking at pandemics is H5N1, which is um, a form of avian flu, which hasn't yet found a way to spread reliably between people. It can spread from birds to people, but not between people. If it does, it has a fatality rate of 60%. Now, that's awful. There is a caveat to that. The more people the virus kills, the less good it is at spreading. But you could well imagine a virus that people might be asymptomatic for a couple of weeks and then it kills people quite horrifically and in quite large numbers. And then you're talking about a far worse pandemic. So, yes, I think this is a warning shot and a reminder that the world has been warned of this and has been warning about this for a very long time. And this is showing us what viruses can do. Do you think there's that's also the moral lesson from this, which is... We need to think more about the future and we need to think more about each other. There are some things about the way we work as a world where this might have been a convenient resetting. Um, I'm not saying that every interview on radio should be conducted in your son's bedroom with a duvet over your head. But I think for a long time it's been apparent that offices aren't necessarily necessary for everyone. I think for a long time it's been apparent that foreign business travel, that scientific conferences aren't as necessary as we thought. There's going to have to be some serious, sensitive discussion about animal husbandry, about the triumvirate, large cities, animals in close proximity and foreign travel, which has enabled this to be the disease it is. The really strange thing about pandemics is that almost every other human malady and uh, difficulty is aided by technology. And indeed, it will be technology that gets us out of this. But this only happened because of technology. This happened because of the world as it is now, an interconnected world where at the time of the Spanish flu, it took you weeks to cross the Atlantic. And now you do it in hours and everything is faster. And we have to be faster in response as well. listening to Stories of Our Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, Times Science Editor, Tom Whipple. And you can read more of Tom's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producers were Edward Drummond and Will Rowe, the executive producer is Leo Hornack, and the deputy executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Nicholas Rawfast, music by Breakmaster Cylinder. And if you like what you heard, please leave us a review. You can subscribe for free. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast and more. Also, in these uncertain times, you can keep up to date and well informed on the coronavirus and so much more every day with a digital subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times. Visit thetimes.co.uk slash subscribe today to find out more. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. 
In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. (laughs) Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, (laughs) you, you were different. Like you were real different. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout season two, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.